You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 11th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up, Russia says it's completed its withdrawal from the Ukrainian city of Kherson. But what will the tactical retreat mean for Vladimir Putin? Also ahead on today's programme, France's far right attempts to clean up its ugly image. But will it make the national rally any more palatable? Plus the headlines from Venezuela and then Andrew Muller will tell us all about the stories that have kept him busy. We learned this week what might be the purest distillation to date of the Tao of Donald Trump, perhaps slightly more former and slightly less future President of the United States than he was seven days ago. All that's coming up right here in The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Russia's defence ministry says it has completed the withdrawal of troops from the key city of Kherson in Ukraine's south. It claims that its soldiers have been moved across the Dnipro River to the eastern bank earlier on this morning. Meanwhile, however, there are reports that some Russian troops are trapped. Well, Sergei Radchenko is a professor of international studies at Johns Hopkins University. I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Welcome, Sergei. Thank you for having me. So have they really gone? Well, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, they have. Of course, the Russian Ministry of Defense has not been the most reliable of all sources. Uh, They do tend to exaggerate their successes and downplay their failures. We have heard over the night conflicting reports of heavy fighting in Kherson. There have, have been no real confirmations of this. What we do see is that the big bridge, uh, the Antonivsky Bridge uh, across the Dnieper River has been detonated, exploded by the, uh, presumably by the retreating Russians. Uh, so that's where we are. But the Russians do claim that they have carried, that they have taken all their forces to left uh, side of the Dnieper River. Indeed. I mean, we have the defense ministry now saying that, well, actually, sorry, um, we have uh, spokespeople, Dmitry Peskov uh, for for, for Vladimir Putin is avoid has avoided in the last couple of minutes addressing the withdrawal from Kherson and has suggested to journalists that they should talk to the defence ministry instead. What does that say about how Russia is handling this? Well, this is and this is very interesting and very typical of the Kremlin. Uh, Putin has taken a detached uh, attitude towards this whole situation, as if he has nothing to do with it, as if he's floating up above in the clouds, and it's just a military decision, something technical, something the generals uh, have basically decided to do. And this has been his line throughout this uh, uh, this whole period since the Russians have uh, announced their impending retreat from Kherson. But the question is, will the Russian public buy this? Will the Russian public say, okay, yes, that's fine, everything is fine, or will they say, oh my God, we're losing this war, despite the fact that uh, Putin has announced that Kherson is part of Russia forever after they annex the territories. So who actually controls Kherson now? Well, it seems, uh, we're talking about the city of Kherson, it seems that the Ukrainians are in the city uh, and are controlling uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the actual city on the uh, right side of the Dnieper uh, River. There is that difficult situation which has been mentioned inc- you know, repeatedly over the last few days that this may be one big trap, that the Russians may actually tactically be in a bit better place on the other side of the Dnipro River. Could you explain that out explain that a little more for us? 
Okay, so well, let's uh, let's take this two things apart here. On the trap claims, we have heard that coming from Ukrainian uh, spokespeople um, close to Vladimir Zelensky. It's hard to know what to make of these claims. So, so far as we can tell, the Russian withdrawal is real, has been real, uh, and, and no trap was intended. But of course, the situation still remains unclear. As to whether the Russians are in a better position on the left side of Dnieper, well, this is without a doubt true. In fact, it's been clear for some weeks and months indeed that the Russian position on the right side of the river in the city itself was unsustainable uh, because the Ukrainians could target their supply chains, their, their logistics um, across the river. Now that the Russians have withdrawn to the other side of the river, of course, pursuing them uh, is going to be more difficult for the Ukrainians because there's a big river that they would have to cross to, to be able to do that. Uh, so yes, uh, by contracting their uh, front line, uh, the, by digging in a little bit, uh, the Russians have maybe, uh, well, they're trying to stabilize the situation uh, for themselves. Of course, they have been on retreat. They have been retreating since the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians began their counteroffensive uh, several months ago now. Incredibly. It's an incredible three months that has actually happened. It has has been pushing most favorably into into the Ukrainian side. I mean, this reju this loss of Kherson, many are saying, is on is absolutely on a par from when Russia Russia withdrew from Kiev. In the grand scheme of things, how much does this further Ukraine's efforts to get Russia out? Well, the Ukrainians are clearly uh, pushing forward at the moment. Clearly, they feel that the wind is in their sails. Uh, and they are hoping to basically push the Russians as far as they can I.e. out of Ukraine altogether, including presumably at least they publicly announced that the uh, uh, former you know territories of DNR and LNR and perhaps even Crimea itself. And they feel that they're able to do and will be able to do that because they have uh, support from the West. They have the weapons that they need to do that. They have the morale and all of those things the Russians lack. Now, uh, I would say that we have still we still have to remain cautious here in our long-term uh, claims about where this war is going. Uh, we have winter that is upon us. Uh, the Russians are digging in and the territories that they still hold and they try, they're trying to inflict damage on Ukraine by targeting uh, the power grid, uh, power stations, uh, water supplies and so on and so forth in order to bring down Ukrainian morale and destroy Ukrainian economy. So if, if the war continues and it's still, it's still very difficult to say how it will play out, but certainly the Ukrainians feel like time is on their side. Time is on their side, and we need to think about ultimately what the 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 aim is here now. And I know that you have spoken publicly about what a defeat would and should look like for Russia, a defeat which is just enough to win, but not enough to destroy Russia permanently. Well, I wonder. You know, I wonder what the defeat would look like we do hear a lot you know we, we hear people talking about defeating russia but nobody really explains what this means does this mean pushing russia back to the lines of february 24th uh does it mean pushing russia all the way out of ukraine including you know, from crimea and dnr and lnr the statelets that it has occupied since 2014. uh but will that stop russia or you know will will russia still be able to uh, regain its strength and still pose threat to Ukraine. We just don't really have an end game in uh, mind here. And there's also the danger that if things go off the rails, as it were, in Russia itself, and it starts falling apart, or 
uh, you know, there's civil war or something that breaks out. This would actually pose very serious security threat uh, to Europe uh, in in terms of, you know, who would want to see civil war in a country that has thousands of nuclear warheads. That's a serious concern that we all need to keep our eyes on as this war continues. Finally, let's return to these reports that it, with the withdrawal of troops from Hassan, the city, there are apparently a a good deal of Russian troops who are now trapped. What can you explain a little bit more? Well, this is what uh, some of the claims that we have heard um, of say that 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 Russians are trapped on the right bank of the Dnieper River. Uh, these claims are being contradicted by the Russian Minister of Defense. We do not have clear evidence. I'm sure in the coming hours and days, we will have a much better understanding what happened to those potentially tens of thousands of Russians who were actually in Kherson, the Russian troops. Were they all withdrawn? Were some captured? Are some still there fighting? It's very difficult to say. We're in the fog of war. Now, obviously, the fewer Russian troops are captured by the Ukrainians on the western side and or killed, the better it will look for uh, the Russian Minister of Defense and for Putin. On the other hand, if there are serious, serious casualties that Russia takes there in Kherson, this will be a very hard sell for the Russian government with the Russian public. They will have to explain themselves. And if there is a considerable number of Russians trapped and the Ukrainians are able to, to, to seize these troops, what can they do with them? Because there is that whole idea of the, you know, proper behaviour within the rules of law and the Geneva Conventions. Well, there there are procedures now for exchange of, of prisoners of war on both sides, and we have had this uh, play out several times. In fact, uh, the defenders of Azovstal in Mariupol were exchanged uh, by by the Russians for uh, uh, Russian POWs and some some other characters that Putin wanted to see in Russia. So, uh, so we have these procedures in place, and if the Ukrainians do capture Russian POWs, I suppose that uh, they will be able to exchange them, um, send them back to Russia and in in return get uh, Ukrainian POWs. Thank you very much indeed, Sergei Radchenko. The time is uh, 10 past 12 here in London. Let's have a quick look at the latest headlines. With them, Monocle 24's Carlotta Rebello. Carlotta. Thanks, Emma. Donald Trump has called Florida's governor Ron DeSantis an average politician and questioned his loyalty. DeSantis is seen as a rising star in the GOP and a clear challenger to Donald Trump should the pair run for the presidency. The UK's former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has said he warned the former Prime Minister Liz Truss that her economic plans were proceeding too quickly. It is the first time that Mr Kwarteng has spoken publicly since leaving office. And U.S. space agency NASA has confirmed that it has successfully tested a huge inflatable heat shield. It's hoped that the device, which looks like a flying saucer, will one day help humans land safely on Mars. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. It is 13.11 in Paris, 12.11 here in London. Now, having had a presidential election earlier this year, France's political parties are now considering their own future. They're regrouping and reshaping ahead of the next round of the political natural cycle. And it's an exercise happening across the board. The far-right national rally has a new young leader called Jordan Bardella loosening for the first time the Le Pen family's stranglehold on the party. On the far left, fresh blood is being sought. Jean-Luc 
Mélenchon, the leader of La France Insoumise, is in his 70s. Well, Philippe Malière is a professor in French and European politics at University College London. I'm delighted to say he's in the studio. Hello, Philippe. Hello. So let's let's take this party by party. Yeah. Let's begin with the uh, the national rally and this this bright young thing, Jordan Bardella. Tell us who he is. He's a very young leader, indeed. He's 27, but he's been around for a while. So uh, it's very deceiving, in fact, because he's been in, in uh, sort of professional politics for at least 10 years. So he started very early. He's very close to Le Pen, to, to Marine Le Pen. So in a way, it's the sort of uh, succession, but uh, Le Pen will keep an eye on what is going on uh, within in, in the party. Uh, he's no moderate, although his work has been so far to, and I use the expression that the... Uh, Rassemblement National people use the de-demonization of the party. What do they mean by that? It means that the brown uh, national rally is still seen by a majority of French voters as toxic, uh, a threat to democracy. So they are attempting, they've been attempting for a while to make it look as kind of a harmless mainstream party, conservative party, if you like. And he's quite good at that. He's very, very, he's got media skills. He's very, very uh, good uh, speaker. But uh, he will follow the the, the line, the the, the 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 party line in terms of policies. And, you know, no expect no changes. You know, immigration, the so-called threat of Islam, uh, um, laicity, all the rest of it will will remain the sort of uh, main topics. Why is it that they've decided to appoint a new leader now? Because arguably, Marine Le Pen is riding on the back of a very successful year. Yes, I think it's a. You can see it as a division of labor. Uh, she still harbors, you know, hopes for the next presidential election, which will take place in uh, less than five years. And she is still relatively young. You know, she's in her mid-50s. So I think she will certainly compete again for the f- fourth time. And uh, she's been doing well. I think at each election she progresses. So I think uh, the future can look quite bright for her at least. So I think the division of Labour, she wants to concentrate on, uh, she's an MP, she's the leader of the parliamentary group, and she will prepare also the next campaign in 2027. So I think to give the keys of the party to a younger a politician who is close to her, who is sort of, uh, he owes his political career to Marine Le Pen, I think is probably a, a wise move. It's a difficult situation if you are Jordan Bardella and you are being brought in as the next generation, the detoxification of the party without the name Le Pen. Nonetheless, what you've just said is that Marine Le Pen still very much is, is has her hands on the steering wheel here. Yes, I think this is in, in that. This is very much the, the sort of uh, what most far-right parties in power think of what is going on in Italy. You know, it's, those are parties who come with a sort of a, a traditional far-right parties. But of course, now that they're getting close to power, or they are even elected, like in Italy, of course, they have to ditch at least the sort of facade, which is a little bit threatening uh, to extremists. Uh, they have to mind the rhetoric as well. But I think... Policy-wise, uh, the French case is not. You're, they're not in for for major uh, changes. I think the the policy of, of all will will remain the same. Um, let's move to the other end of the political scale, where we have Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the leader of La France Insoumise, a character who is very vocal, very powerful, and arguably the bit one of the big surprises of the French presidential elections from this year. It was quite astonishing to see just how much power and influence he wielded over the electorate and also over in terms of the forming the, the, the way that the French government is shaping up. Um, but he's in his 70s. 
So what happens to the far left here? Well, I think you're you're right. I think he was defeated by Whisker by Le Pen for the second uh, spot, uh, qualifying for the second round of the election. He, he could have been there facing Macron, but he was defeated yet again. So I think for him, it's it seems all downhill from now on because he's in his seventies. Is is very nice, no longer the kind of undisputed leader on the left because his style is a far-brand politician, uh, puts off lots of. Uh, People on the left, moderate voters, uh, do not like him. So it's a bit difficult. So yes, now he's got a parliamentary group. Mélenchon himself has uh, is not is no longer an MP. He's got a parliamentary group, uh, which is young. Uh, they are very skilled politicians, but I think what is still lacking is a sort of a new credible leader to replace him. It is that interesting thing, isn't it? Because old blood is not necessarily bad blood. I mean, is there this need to sort of replace people? Because Mélenchon didn't seem to have any sign of, you know, of lacking energy when he was when he was dominating the airwaves in France earlier That's this right. year. And probably France, France are the world champions probably when it comes to very long political careers. I think you have political careers stretching out, you know, 40, 50 years. I think you don't have that in the UK, not that long. And the main politicians of, uh, in the past, you know, Mitterrand, Chirac, are testament to that kind of phenomenon. So, uh, yes, Mélenchon has been around for 40 years, so it will be very hard to imagine that he will run again, but who knows? How much is all this reshaping and rebranding and recalibrating down to the fact that parties now see an opportunity that the weakened parliamentary position of Emmanuel Macron is something that they can really capitalise on? Yes, this is really the other the other, the other, other problem. Uh, Macron has lost his majority, so I think he, of course, he has ambition of reform France, notably a sort of um, quite controversial pension reform, uh, pushing back retirement age to 65 in France. And without a majority, can't do it. So what we've got at the moment in the National Assembly is uh, a lack of majority, uh, a bit of a piecemeal majorities are forming sometimes to get the bills up. Uh, past. But I think when it comes to the big ones, it's impossible. What the government has been doing also is using the infamous Article 49.3. Where ah, that the, the, famous Article yes, 49.3. infamous, because the Prime Minister comes before the House then and pledges the responsibility of the government, uh, which means the passage in force of, of the bill without any discussion whatsoever, which is really undemocratic, unless uh, parliamentary groups in the House are uh, uh, sort of vote a motion of censor of the government. But of course, at the moment, no one seems to have an interest in censoring the government because that would mean early elections. The uh, national rally has 88 MPs doing well. The The conservatives are very weak. The, the left is not that united and also weak. So in a sense, uh, it's not a good situation for Macron, but his opponents are, are probably too weak to, to censor him. And looking at the wider, more long-term question, which I think is a question that's being asked in many countries now, what will the next batch of French parliamentarians look like? Who will they be? Where will they come from? Because there's a big question at the moment, which is who would ever want to go into today's politics? I think let's probably try to, to, to end on a more optimistic note, which is probably that French politics is changing for the better when you look at the sociology of MPs. used to be a very male, middle-class, middle-aged world until recently. Now you've got younger MPs, more female MPs, and you've got, you start having the first ethnic minorities MP, which is very new in France. France really lag, lags behind on the, in this respect. So I think in a way... 
if uh, sort of all parties left and right sort of have a more diversified uh, intake of MPs, you know, I think it would be good for democracy because at least you have MPs which are more representative of what the French, represent, uh, French population at large is. Philippe Malia, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Briefing live on Monocle 24. Let's head to Venezuela now to get a roundup of the stories making the news there with Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott. Hello, Lucinda. Good morning, Emma. So tell us what's making the headlines where you are. Yes, yeah, so in a total kind of reversal of the political climate towards President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, Macron of France met him at COP27 this week, as well as John Kerry of the US. Now, Venezuela boasts the world's largest proven oil reserves. It used to pump actually 3 million barrels a day, but US-imposed sanctions and, and years of economic mismanagement have crippled production. And so what's changing in, in not just the, the, the climate change, but the political climate change is that as different nations are grappling with a poor financial outlook brought on in part by the war in Ukraine, which is affecting energy markets, governments are increasingly being more accommodating towards Maduro and the kind of oil supply power that he potentially wields. That's, you know, it's a slight change of affairs when it comes to the way that Venezuela is seen from the outside. So what's, what's been the reaction to the fact that Maduro is being listened to? Well, actually, we've seen kind of other Latin American nations warming to him, too. It's not just other Western nations. Um, And it's really being spearheaded by the president of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, who is the first left wing leader of Colombia that shares a, a long border with Venezuela. And he's described the deterioration of the relationship as absolutely disastrous. I mean, upwards of two million uh, Venezuelan migrants have fled to Colombia, putting pressure, obviously, on public services. And the countries were previously big trading partners as Venezuela was with other um, countries in the region and many on both sides you know shared dual nationality and yesterday commercial flights resumed for the first time in years Um, Petro who's recently I think he was the first leader of any major Latin American nation to visit Maduro and like Petro we've had many victories for leftist leaders in elections as incumbents get voted out and their new governments are acknowledging, really, this the failure of this US-backed interim government, which was led by Juan Guaido, um, who was appointed to kind of oust Maduro. And here we are three years on. There's been no regime change. And so they're thinking again and, and moving to recognize Maduro in some shape or form. And, and the latest have been actually Honduras and Brazil. This is a, a difficult moment for Juan Guaido, isn't it? Because the opposition parties in Venezuela have already said that they are unlikely to back him, despite the fact that he has the backing of Washington. Yeah, I mean, Guaido has been entirely sidelined. This actually does go back a while. Um, It hasn't happened overnight. The US, as you say, still recognises him, as well as some other European nations. I'm pretty sure Britain does as well. Um, But he's also got problems, as you said, within the Venezuelan opposition, which is this vast array of different interest groups now where leaders of parties are are trying to push him out or replace him, saying that he hasn't achieved much. Um, Some members of the opposition have also said that it it wants to take part 
in elections. And actually, one reason why Guaido even has this interim role that's recognised internationally is that the opposition claimed the presidential elections were, were fraudulent and so have refused to take part in any races in Venezuela since. And so that too is changing. So within barely three to four years, we've gone from almost ousting Maduro in a coup-like move to him at international conferences in Sharm el-Sheikh um, with very much the upper hand. And is that having any effect on the way that Venezuelans see their own country? Because we had a large exodus a last couple of years ago, in, you know, when costs of living became impossible, when there was so much in- instability. Are Venezuelans having more confidence in their own country? Possibly. I mean, one thing that I have noticed also speaking to to friends and, and, and of mine who, who had been living in Caracas, um, part of the reason is the economy. I mean, uh, now there's a wide circulation of, of US dollars in foreign currency in Venezuela. Dollars are, dollars are accepted, which they weren't before. There were strict currency controls. And that brought about many issues and shortages. And today, the picture is marginally brighter. I mean, Venezuela will record eight or 10 percent growth this year, which is a record for the decade. Uh, There are more frequent flights, as I mentioned. Um, But really, the people who are now in their 30s and 40s who are part of that big exodus, um, they're I've been hearing about them sort of returning to see elderly relatives, perhaps to take perhaps to take care of businesses um, or property that their families own, whether that's a small apartment in downtown Caracas or helping others sort of manage farms or assets. And they feel that the time has come really to come back in part because it seems that Maduro isn't going anywhere. Listen to Elliot, our Latin America affairs correspondent. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You with the briefing. Finally, a Friday treat. If you've missed anything in the news, don't worry. Here's Andrew Muller with what we learned. We learned this week what might be the purest distillation to date of the Tao of Donald Trump, perhaps slightly more former and slightly less future president of the United States than he was seven days ago. Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, Okay. The big goose was speaking shortly before Tuesday's US midterm elections, which notably failed to conjure what Trump's Republican Party had anticipated as a red wave. And turned out to be more a sort of purple trickle verging perhaps on a gurgle. We have not learned as of this recording what the final shakeout of the new US Congress will be, but we might have learned, or perhaps just choose to believe, sue us where crazy optimists with an irrepressible faith in the good sense and common decency of the American people that the Republican Party's interest in swivel-eyed ding-battery has peaked. Hooray? Or perhaps not. For we learned that while Donald Trump's aspirations of a waddle back to Washington may have taken a step or two backwards, a march might have been stolen by Trump's fellow Floridian, the freshly and thumpingly re-elected governor of the and finally state, this guy. To the woke mob, Florida is where woke goes to die. Woke. 
Whatever that even is, going to Florida to die, along with the grandparents of Midwesterners and the dignity of divorced dads in floral shirts. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. We learned in some that we should probably accustom ourselves to the possibility of Cletus Churchill here running for actual president. Oh no. So we learned that perhaps the United States has not completely extricated itself from, if you will, the fevered, fervid, steaming, seething, boiling, roiling, populist... And then they have cans of soup. Soup. We did learn, however, that amid these midterms, the state of Tennessee had, after what has clearly been a long and thorough deliberation, voted to abolish slavery. <coughs> we further learned, when we read into it a bit, that what had actually happened was that four states, Tennessee, Vermont, Oregon and Alabama, had voted to close constitutional loopholes which still theoretically permitted involuntary servitude for convicted prisoners, which does actually seem pretty reasonable. Yeah. So we learned once again that there's nothing quite like bothering to read the story to remove all the fun to be had from jeering sanctimoniously on the basis of a clickbaity headline. And we also learned that, at any rate, nothing we could possibly conclude or suggest in response to these midterms could ever compete with the razor-sharp political analysis furnished by Fox News. When it comes to the state of Pennsylvania, why did Dr. Oz lose? Well, it looks like, according to uh, the exit polling, it's because Fetterman won. Elsewhere. We learned that these people had, incredibly, found a way to become even more annoying. Actually, we can't put our listeners through too much more of this. Do we have a sound effect evoking a piano falling from an overflying cargo aircraft with, you know, a certain amount of ominous whistling building steadily in volume before landing with a resonant crash of wood and ivory on a woefully, indeed willfully inept brass band? <laughs> Much better. Reduced to merciful silence there were the so-called England Band, an indefatigable mob of attention-seeking bores who have been plaguing England football games with their dismal parping and inane honking for some years now. We learned this week that not only were they planning to attend the World Cup in Qatar later this month... No, don't. No, no, no. ...but that they had been enlisted as PSYOPs agents by the hosts. We learned that members of the England band were among several hundred fans from more than 30 nations recruited by Qatar as clandestine boosters of their event to make favourable social media postings about Qatar in return for free flights and hotels and 60 quid a day in spending money. 
We learned, therefore, that at least where their outreach to the UK was concerned, Qatar's PR people would appear to have misjudged grievously their choice of undercover influencers. Though if they are listening, and why would they not be, they can yet turn this around, and in so doing earn the eternal warm feelings of a grateful British people by incarcerating the England band indefinitely on the type of dubious trumped-up charges of which repressive petrostates are famously fond. And staying in the United Kingdom, we learned, not for the first time, that the Scots are not having any nonsense. For we learned the result of a public consultation to decide a name for a new museum in the city of Perth. In more insufferably whimsical jurisdictions, it is depressingly easy to imagine how this could have ended, with some local dignitary being eventually compelled to unveil a plaque inaugurating Museumy McMuseum face or similar. Not in Scotland, we learned, and especially not in Perth. No, we learned that Perth's museum, when it opens in 2024, will be known as... Perth Museum. They don't ever catch on. Not sure if I got it. Just rewrite it. We've learned, basically, something of the value of not overthinking things. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. And special thanks also to Steph Chungu, who was responsible for the sound on that epic piece of radio. That's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Thank you to all my guests and to the producer, Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time, but we'll have much more news and analysis across the weekend here on Monocle 24. For now, though, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.